You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. In this regard, I wish to emphasize that the acting attorney general has issued regulations defining my authority and jurisdiction in precisely the same terms as were used in defining those of Professor Cox with what I think is a notable and and significant addition of a firm and formal assurance that the president has agreed not to exercise his constitutional power to effect my discharge, except in accordance with the consensus of the bipartisan leadership of the House and the Senate and of the judiciary committees of both houses. In particular, prior to acceptance, I was given unqualified assurance that there would be absolutely no constraints on my freedom to seek any and all evidence, wherever it may be, including the presidential files, and to invoke the judicial process should I consider it necessary. sense it coming. A grim-faced Judge Sirica had even warned a reporter, you better be there. White House lawyers and the prosecutors had left an in-chambers conference several times during the afternoon to make emergency phone calls. Now, Presidential Counsel J. Fred Bazart made the announcement. Last week, while preparing an index for the court, we discovered 18 minutes of a June 20th tape contained an audible tone and no conversation. A number of technical tests were made yesterday to discover the reason for the tone, but without satisfactory results. Prosecutor Richard Benvenista quickly promised a thorough investigation and urged, as he put it, in light of the latest revelations, that the court take steps to ensure the safety of the remaining tapes. Judge Sirica, in view of what's happened, this is just another incident which convinces the court it should take some steps. Not because the court doesn't trust the White House, but the court would feel much better if the president voluntarily surrendered the tapes now. While the details are still being sorted out, it appears the mysterious tone begins in the middle of a conversation between the president and his then chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman. It was the first time the two had a chance to discuss Watergate. And as the original subpoena says, the inference that Haldeman reported on Watergate and received instructions is almost irresistible. Later that same day, the president had his first conversation on the telephone with John Mitchell. And that, as you'll recall, is one of the two missing conversations. So now, on the day the prosecution suspects the Watergate cover-up began, the crucial conversations between the president and his chief aides are missing or partially obliterated. The captain's job to bring that ship into port. And I can assure you, that you don't need to worry about my getting seasick or jumping ship. I'm going to stay on that helm till we bring it into port. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. The 18 and a half minute gap plus two unrecorded conversations. Alexander Haig said it must have been a sinister force. But it, it was just an extraordinary situation. It seems that no one can accept that machines, especially 1973 technology machines, screw up. There just had to be some kind of uh, conspiratorial reason 
uh, for everything to have happened. And in this episode, we're going to take a look and let you hear both the prosecuting uh, team and the defense team and their explanations for what happened with the 18 and a half minute gap and the other two conversations that were not recorded. It creates an enormous firestorm uh, in November. But in the meantime, we got to get Gerald Ford nominated to be vice president. I come before you as the nominee of the president to fill a vacancy in the office of vice president of the United States under the provisions of the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, for which 65 senators and 368 members of the House in 1968-65 voted for, and which the legislatures of 48 states subsequently ratified. I might note that the state where I was born, Mr. Chairman, Nebraska, was the first to ratify the 25th Amendment. As you might guess, I have recently reviewed the debate on the 25th Amendment, and there is very little doubt that most of our attention in framing that amendment was centered on the question of presidential succession, on filling a vacancy in the presidency. Section 2, which dealt with the problems of filling a vacancy in the vice presidency, was a subsidiary issue in our minds, despite the fact that on 16 previous occasions, for a total of 27 years in our constitutional history, the nation has been without a vice president. Vice presidents have died, and they have resigned. Today, our circumstances are unprecedented. Until now, vice presidents have always been elected, at first separately, but most of the time together with the president, by an electoral college chosen for that purpose by all the people. One vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, was elected by the Senate in 1837 under the Twelfth Amendment when the electoral vote was tied. This is the first time in the history that both the Senate and the House of Representatives have been required to advise and consent to the president's nomination of vice president. These are not ordinary times, nor I suppose will the times ever be ordinary when the 25th Amendment must be invoked. However, I want to assure you, Mr. Chairman, the members of this committee and all of my colleagues in the House or in the Congress, that I fully appreciate and share your determination to consider with the utmost diligence my qualifications and fitness for the second highest office of the Republic. For the sake of the country we all love, for your sake, and certainly for mine, Mr. Chairman, I would not want it otherwise. I am a member of this Congress. I have a vote and a responsibility under the Constitution the same as yours. Under the circumstances, however, I will vote present when my nomination is before the House. I might say parenthetically I'm used to this. Custom has compelled me to do it in the last five votes for the Speakership of the House when I consecutively lost on those occasions to the Honorable John McCormick and the Honorable Carl Albert. 
You know, Mr. Chairman, life plays some funny tricks on people. Here I've been trying with might and main for 25 years to become Speaker of the House. Suddenly, I'm a candidate for President of the Senate, where I could hardly ever vote and where I'll never get a chance to speak. When I was asked by the President for my recommendations for Vice President, I really did suggest Hugh Scott and Mel Laird and one other whose name I won't tell. But the President didn't pay any attention to my advice on that occasion. I know you're going to have a lot of questions for me, but there are two very big ones. Perhaps I can answer at the outset. First, what makes you or me, Jerry Ford, qualified to be Vice President of the United States? Second, what kind of a Vice President would you hope to be? Let me take the second question first. How do I regard the office of the Vice Presidency in the climate and the context of right now and in the terms of the future? History isn't much help here except recent history, through which we have all lived. There are only three living Americans who have held this high office. And three weeks ago at the White House, one of them told me he wanted me to take the job. The first two telephone calls I got after that announcement were from the two other former vice presidents. And for their generous good wishes, I will always be very grateful. Now let's look at the explosive accusations and circumstances surrounding the two missing conversations and the 18 and a half minute gap of the first conversation in June uh, over Watergate. First, we're going to hear Richard Benvenisti. He is one of the special prosecutors uh, on the team that was first assembled by uh, Archibald Cox. He's going to be interviewed here by the Richard Nixon Presidential Library Director Tim Naftali for an oral history. And then we're going to listen to Jeff Shepard, one of the uh, attorneys in who defended the president. He's interviewed by presidential, uh, the Richard Nixon Presidential Foundation's president and radio personality, Hugh Hewitt. During the period that uh, the subpoena goes out, who has physical custody of the tapes? Well, uh, certainly the president had physical custody in the White House, except to the extent that he became a lending library, and uh, those tapes left the White House. Um, we learned later that, for example, that H.R. Uh, Haldeman uh, was allowed the opportunity to listen to tapes. Uh, he was, by that time, out of the White House. He had been uh, allowed to resign his position. Uh, and uh, though the president suggested that Haldeman, as a continual uh, trusted advisor, be allowed to listen to them, the tapes were taken uh, by the president to Camp David at one point and were transcribed by Rosemary Woods and the president's assistant, uh, Stephen Bull, uh, was also involved in the handling of the tapes at that point. 
tell us about your reaction when, I guess it's Len Garman and Fred Bazard, both or one of them, informs uh, the force that uh, there are some missing tapes and gaps on one tape in particular. Well, immediately uh, after the Saturday Night Massacre and the president's capitulation that he will, in fact, uh, produce the first tranche of subpoenaed tapes, uh, it was announced that uh, one of the tapes didn't exist and another had not been recorded. And so this announcement was met with some degree of skepticism inasmuch as uh, Archie had been fired after a promise uh, that he would not be fired uh, except for extraordinary impropriety and yet uh, he had been removed in the Saturday Night Massacre. And, uh, and so we're not inclined to, to be terribly generous in crediting the president simply on the basis of uh, what his lawyers put forward. Uh, and so we appeared before Judge Sirica. Uh, uh, the uh, assertion was made by uh, Fred Bizarre, uh, counsel to the president, that uh, two of the tapes could not be produced. And one of them could not be produced because supposedly the recording mechanism in the taping system, the timer, uh, had malfunctioned. And uh, I suggested that we have a hearing about it. And Bizarre uh, did not regard that suggestion as one which he would embrace immediately. And the judge said, well, maybe you can satisfy uh, Mr. Benveniste and his associates by explaining why that happened. I said, okay, but I judge uh, we're not promising that we won't come back to you. So uh, it was arranged that one of the technicians from the bowels of the White House, one uh, a gentleman by the name of Zumwalt, uh, who was uh, uh, involved in setting up and maintaining the taping system, uh, was delivered to my office the next day with a White House lawyer accompanying him. And I said I would be happy to interview Mr. Zumwalt, but the White House lawyer could not attend. Uh, we had enough of the White House sending monitors during the cover-up period, uh, with John Dean being privy to all of the work that the prosecutors were doing in in uh, accumulating evidence and interviewing witnesses. So I said, that period has ended. There is no more White House sitting in on interviews. And he said, well, uh, these are my instructions. I said, well, you give Mr. Bizarre a call and you let him know that uh, this is our position and if he would like to take Mr. Zumwalt home and uh, we'll go to court before Judge Sirica without these interviews. So he got back to me shortly and said, okay, go ahead. So with the White House lawyer sitting in the anteroom, I interviewed Mr. Zumwalt about the taping system. He gave a very candid uh, recitation of how it got started and what they did to service the system. And I asked him specifically, well, was there any malfunction at any time of the timing mechanism? And these were voice-activated tapes. And he said, no, I've never heard of that. 
So I called uh, Mr. Bizarre on the phone. I said, I'll tell you what, Mr. Zumwalt's been very helpful. How about if we just put this on the record in front of Judge Sirica? Let's do it this afternoon. And uh, Bizarre said, well, okay, we'll do that. So we went before Judge Sirica and uh, dutifully Fred Bizarre called Mr. Zumwalt to the stand uh, who testified under direct examination uh, that the reason for the fact that one of the tapes was missing was because there was a malfunction in the timer. Cross-examination. Mr. Zumwalt, remember me from this morning? Yes, we had a nice conversation. Yes, I asked you whether you were aware of any malfunction at any time in the timing mechanism of the taping system. Do you remember that? Yes. And your answer was that you had no recollection. Is that correct? Yes. So between this morning and this afternoon, how is it that you can now testify that there was such a malfunction in the timing mechanism? And Zumwalt replied, well, Mr. Brizard told me that's what happened. So the courtroom erupted in laughter, and this was obviously a, an insufficient explanation of why this tape was missing. And I suggested to Judge Sirica that perhaps the White House might want to call someone who was more knowledgeable about the system. And we went from that point for a couple of weeks up through the chain of command until uh, eventually we had the Chief of Staff Alexander Haig on the stand explaining what happened. In the course of all of this, the supposed uh, mythical uh, extraordinary capability of the White House staff, the Haldemans, Ehrlichmans, Haig's, and the like, um, was sub substantially called into question. I think there was already now the choice between incompetence or venality, and incompetence was the preferred, uh, the preferable choice under those circumstances. Um, and uh, and why would Haig have known about uh, about the timing system any better than the technician? Well, Haig uh, uh, made his appearance by the time the issue of the eighteen and a half minute gap was raised. This was the next major cataclysm. Uh, that we encountered. That is, one of the tapes, a critical tape in our view, one in which the president is uh, meeting with Haldeman back in Washington uh, immediately after he returned from California following the uh, Watergate break-in. So the break-in is on the 17th. The conversation took place on June the 20th, and Lo and behold, we are advised that an 18-and-a-half-minute gap uh, replaces conversation on the tape, which, according to the notes of H.R. Haldeman, was at exactly the point that the two men discussed the Watergate break-in. And so Alexander Haig was called in connection uh, with the circumstances leading up to the 18-and-a-half-minute gap. And uh, he did not have a good explanation. Uh, 
for what had occurred. Rosemary Woods was uh, put forward uh, as uh, perhaps the person who inadvertently erased 18 and a half minute gaps, the 18 and a half minute uh, of the conversation. Um, and she was not a willing participant up to a point to be thrown under the bus and take full responsibility for that. But it, it, in Haig's testimony, uh, his best explanation of what happened uh, was that a sinister force had appeared and had erased the tapes, which in hindsight might have been the more candid explanation for what occurred. Um, can you recall for us the um, the expert testimony that you had on the tape itself? You actually had the tape examined. Yes. Um, uh, the White House and the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Office uh, reached an agreement whereby we would call a distinguished panel of experts, uh, experts in audio technology, physicists, uh, prominent scientists, um, to determine first whether anything could be recovered uh, from the tape that had the 18 and a half minutes of buzzing and uh, various uh, non-human voice uh, material on it. And secondly, if they could determine uh, how, in fact, the 18 and a half minutes was obliterated. And so uh, we convened such a panel, and uh, they came to a conclusion. And their conclusion was that the 18 and a half minutes had been created as a result of from seven to nine separate distinct erasures on that tape. Richard, to what extent was Richard Nixon his own lawyer in this case? Well, I wasn't behind the scenes in a position to know, uh, but I think Nixon's uh, fear of disclosing what had actually occurred really inhibited him from choosing a legal team early on with uh, substantial criminal law experience. And so, uh, as in the tapes hearing, every day at the end of the hearing when we got more and more inconsistent answers, unsatisfying answers, I would ask the court to continue the hearing and to call new and additional witnesses, and we simply ran the table on the White House, uh, uh, calling witnesses from the bowels of the White House up through the Chief of Staff. We've talked about your role in transcribing the tapes, guarding the tapes during the defense of the president. What was the president's connection with the tapes? Well, it was quite remote, Hugh. Uh, uh, the, the, the tape system was installed in February of 1971, and it's automatic. So if the president's in the room and there's sound, it's, it's recorded. And, of course, if it's a tap on a phone line, it's very clear. If it's in the Oval Office, it's pretty clear. If it's in the hideaway office in the old executive office building, it's, it's terrible. It's unintelligible. Uh, you get snippets. Uh, and it's, it's unique when you're working on those transcripts and you're working on the snippets, snippets you hear what you want to hear. Uh, you, you listen to the same thing ten times. And it, it keeps changing on you. So uh, 
Never once were those tapes ever played uh, uh, until uh, Alex Butterfield revealed their existence. Nixon didn't want them for current use. They were supposed to be his research library for after he left the presidency. Nobody was supposed to know. He was going to reference them if he needed them and then destroy them. It was never supposed to be known that they that it existed at all. But, you know, it came out and, 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 and uh, there was a subpoena that first week from the special prosecutor. And they asked for nine tapes at the beginning, mainly connected with John Dean. We've not yet introduced the concept of the special prosecutor. So I'm looking more at this point for what the president did with the tapes, regardless of who's asking for them or not. When did he start to listen to them? Well, the first thing he did was ask Rose with, uh, with Fred Bizart's concurrence. Rose Woods. Rose Woods, his longtime personal secretary, she was set up uh, and, and her assistant, a fine lady named Marge Acker, uh, and they set about doing transcripts. And, and this is very, very hard because uh, the tapes aren't all that high quality. They're on six-inch individual reels. So your first task is to find the conversation. Actually, uh, the first task is to find the tapes. Where were they physically stored after they ran out of reel? Uh, the Secret Service saw to that. There was a uh, cabinet. I think it was built in under a staircase where the tapes were all set. And they but, marked them with the date. Oh, absolutely. And time. Uh, but for example, these are individual recorders. So if it was a telephone line, all the telephone taps are on that tape. It may not run out for a long time. Uh, if it was uh-huh. an Oval Office, it might be replaced once or twice a day. Uh, but if he walks from the Oval Office to the old EOB, the tape recorders don't follow him. Those are on different reels. And so you've got the president's daily diary. There's, it's amazing what they do with it. You, you, you can go online and find these. Uh, the president uh, uh, came to the Oval Office at, at, at 7.03 a.m. At 7.15, he was given breakfast that consisted of... At 7.22, Bob Haldeman came in and stayed for eight minutes. At C took a phone call. And they just document minute by minute what the president did during the course of the day. So Rose so, is dispatched to assemble into one coherent transcript everything that has happened on the tapes? No, 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 not at all. Uh, uh, the subpoena was nine tapes. She is, she is told to transcribe the subpoenaed conversations. Nothing more, nothing less. She has to figure out who's in the meeting, who's talking, when they're talking. And as we found from this very system here today, we talk over each other. Uh, you gesture, you say and so on. You don't speak in clipped sentences like you would in a stage play to convey accurately to the audience. You say you know, and somebody else inserts a thought halfway through. You're joking. Oh, no, not at all. I did that purposely. These are are very, very hard to do. Yes, I I know that. I said that for the benefit of the listeners so that they would understand and think about, God, I don't hope I never have to transcribe anything. It's an interesting thing. You try taping your Thanksgiving dinner, and then you try preparing a transcript, and you can't do it. You don't know if it was Bobby or John. You don't know if that clank was the spoon or the platter. I mean, you just... You, you, it's very, very hard. Right, you got it. Uh, and there's a huge difference between reading a transcript and hearing the tape. 
there's an emphasis on the words. There's a there's an elevation sometimes. Uh, there's strong feelings. There's hesitancy. There's also profanity or there is. expletives deleted. I am the expletive deleter. Uh, uh, that was one of my one of my jobs. Why did you a, a diversion? Why did you do that? Uh, to preserve the dignity of the office. It was that out, your choice? Was it oh, Fred's no, choice? Nothing, was it president's never choice? Never my choice. Never your choice. Uh, I'm just a, an underling. Uh, the president did not swear with the consistency and frequency that the tapes imply. Uh, you would think he would be perhaps like Lyndon Johnson, you know, with these exquisite... Uh, a profanity earthy, volcano. Earthy descriptions, nothing like that. The trouble was... Nixon used the adjective goddamn all the time. And and he, I think, didn't even realize he was saying it, but if he felt strongly, he would say, don't hit the table with that goddamn mug. You know, and, and it just kept coming up. Then we're going to publish the transcript. And the president says, uh-oh, this is using the Lord's name in vain. Let's remove it. So Fred Bazark comes up with a phrase, expletive deleted in, in uh, brackets. brackets. And I said, listen, I'm happy to do that, of course. You're deleting an adjective. And when you delete it, people will think it's a different word. They will think it's the F word. And you, you really shouldn't do this. Why don't we, we eliminate the word God Leave the word damn so they'll know you weren't saying the F word. Goes back up the chain. I never spoke to the president. I spoke to Fred. Fred spoke to the president. Answer comes back down, no. Do it the way we instructed. And I called it the Baptist filter because I think the president felt that using the Lord's name in vain would offend his core supporters. And it was better they thought he was using the F word than to know for sure what he did. Speculation. But what was his, the nine tapes are subpoenaed. They're transcribed after Rosewood's painstakingly put them together. What does the president do with those transcripts? When does he actually physically come into contact with the tapes? I don't know. Uh, They have records. It can be found that at some point he says, I guess I better listen to the tape. But I don't think that it had to do with those first nine. It may have. Uh, the difficulties got compounded because two of the nine conversations were never recorded in the first place. There was a phone call, and that phone wasn't tapped. There was a tape, and it, he returned to the office, to the hideaway office late in the day, and the tape machine, which had a backup reel, ran out of the backup reel, so that conversation of April 15th was never recorded. What is the missing minutes? How many of them are there, and from what tape, and how do you imagine, Jeff Shepard, that those minutes went missing? Let me postpone that just for a second. Oh, Jeff, you will answer a question directly someday. I will, just a moment. He must have listened to those tapes because he knew those two conversations hadn't been recorded and he didn't get around to telling his lawyers. Okay? So they held that against him. So when they said, we're going to turn over all nine tapes, they then learned two of them hadn't been recorded. 
and there's the 18-minute gap. Now, let's go back to the 18-minute gap. Okay. When did that gap occur, and what is Jeff Shepard's best view as to how it occurred? Uh, the gap is in a conversation dated June 20th, 1972, which is three days after the break-in arrests and three days before the smoking gun tape. It is the first time the president meets with Bob Haldeman in front of a taping machine because they were both out of town uh, when the break-in arrests occurred. Nixon is down in the Bahamas. Uh, uh, Haldeman is out in California, and they come back to work, and there's a meeting. And Haldeman's notes say the word Watergate. But when we go to produce the tape, uh, there is an 18-minute gap on the tape. This is what Fred told me. Others have said, I've heard other stories, Jeff. I'm not sure that is true, but it's only what Fred told me at the time. We decided we would make copies of the tapes because when we learned the two conversations didn't exist, Sirica said, I think rightly, I want the whole reel. I don't want just that segment because there's been hanky-pink, and, and therefore I want the reel. So Fred, being, having been the general counsel of the Department of Defense, knew people at the National Security, uh, Security Agency, NSA. NSA are the talk people, okay? So his colleague at NSA and Fred went over at night to NSA and made high-speed copies of the seven reels. Now, they got to find the conversation. And what Fred had done, had this little list in his coat pocket that was the footage of each conversation. So we know, as an example, it's on tape number 17. And Fred would say, what I want you to do is transcribe this tape. Uh, it's at 122 feet into the reel. So you'd get that close, and then you have to fish around trying to find the conversation. Later, he put a little slip of paper in the reel so you could see right where it was. You could get right to it. But that wasn't done when he went over to NSA, so they're trying to find these conversations. And his colleague, whose name I never learned, uh, says, uh, I keep running into this missing segment, and there's this buzz. And it turned out there was this 18-minute, 18-and-a-half-minute gap. There's a buzz for the first three minutes or so, and then it changes tone, but it's throughout. Fred comes back, and he knows that Rose has been working on the transcripts. So he believes Rose has caused the gap. Now, we learn that Rose really did cause the first five or uh, three or five minutes that she's transcribing as she describes the phone ring. She reaches for the phone and she inadvertently hit or somehow had the erase button on. Now she's switching back and forth manually, forward, backward, forward, backward, trying to go over the words. You can't, you can't get but three or four words. You got to turn it off, go back, start again. It's very time consuming, very tedious. Uh, uh, but she maintains it certainly wasn't 18 minutes. Fred suspects Rose anyway. She was the only one handling the tapes at this point. She goes over to the special prosecutor, to Leon Jaworski, and he says, we have a problem. There's this gap on one of the subpoenaed conversations. 
And if you work with us, we can figure out who did it. But we're on your side on this thing. We're not fooling around. We're straight lawyers. And Jaworski says, well, that may well be, but we have to inform John Sirica right now. So the two of them go over to see Judge Sirica, explain the situation, and Sirica says, I want a hearing this afternoon. This has to become public right now. And Bazart says, that will end any hope of an investigation. Sirica says, I'm scheduling a hearing for 2 o'clock. And the only person who knows about the gap is Fred Bazart. So the president's lawyer is placed on the stand while prosecutors who had no involvement in uncovering the gap get to cross-examine him as though they've discovered the gap. And Fred is demeaned and made to believe that somehow he's involved. He was really upset when he got back from that. But, and then, of course, Rose says, I, you know, except for these three minutes, I had nothing to do with it. So Fred decides, we'll get this tape expert who was making me copies to come over and see if it's the machine, the, the recorder that caused the gap. And this takes a long time, but as it turns out, this is a Ewer 5000 tape recorder. And it, and it has a faulty bridge rectifier. And if it's plugged into the same outlet, you've got a double outlet there, okay? Two outlets. And the other outlet has a tensor lamp. Do you remember the tensor sure. lamps? Your viewers may not know, or your listeners, but it's a single stock and a very, very bright light called a, a tensor lamp. And it consumed massive amounts of amperage. And there was a problem in that outlet so that if the tensor light were on and that particular recorder were plugged in to the same outlet, there would be a buzz. Now, whether the buzz caused the erasure or not, we don't know. But Fred Bizarre and this NSA guy go over to Rose Wood's office at night after she's gone home. And he recreates the buzz. So Fred calls me uh, on Thanksgiving Day and says, your job when you come to work tomorrow, we're not taking Friday off after Thanksgiving, uh, is to find a tape expert, outsider, who can testify as to this situation because the guy, the NSA guy can't do it. He can't come into court. So your job is go find a tape expert that, that we can qualify and come in and explain this gap because we've, we've sold it. So I uh, uh, talk to a local hi-fi shop and say, you know, who knows and all this stuff. And they say Westinghouse is the tape experts. So we call Westinghouse Corporation. I think they're in Pittsburgh. We want your best tape guy. And the general counsel comes on. And this is the White House, you know, you and he says, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure we want to play. And, and he said, now, we're a big defense contractor, and we understand. He says, can't be near the tapes. I said, no, we're working with copies. Just, just no problem at all. They produce a tape expert, comes over and comes in on Saturday. I, Rose isn't there. I take him over to Rose's office, and I say, here, go make it, make it buzz. 
we don't know about the tensor light at this time. We don't know about the special outlet. He, he can't make it buzz. So he's going to take the directions home to the hotel, think about it, come back the next day. Now, the little office where they were working on transcribing the tape is not the office where Rose Woods is on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Reaching with, back. With the Rose Mercy. Right. That's, that's her ceremonial office. Uh, uh, the little office where they had to have absolute silence. They had to, you know, nobody around to do these transcripts is a tiny little closet, close, but tiny, so tiny, two people couldn't be in the office at the same time. So when I took this tape expert over on Saturday with my White House pass, I never enter the office. He does. He sits down. He fools with a recorder. He can't take the recorder because Rose is going to come back to, to work. So he takes the directions for the recorder. He comes back the next day. I'm doing other stuff. Another lawyer took him over. He still can't produce the buzz. But then it turned out, to our surprise, the special prosecutors concluded the tape recorder itself was evidence. And they wanted to know who touched the evidence. So that poor Westinghouse tape expert is dragged in from the grand jury. His name becomes public. Westinghouse is all upset. And I skate free because I never entered the office, although the FBI did come to talk to me. Did President Nixon ever touch the tape recorder? Not to the best of my knowledge. Uh, uh, and, and I don't think anybody's ever suggested that he did, although he did at one point have the tape recorder set up so he could listen to the tape. Now, whether he did the controls or not, I'm unable to tell you. Does anybody know that answer? Yeah, probably Steve Bull. Steve Bull was his uh, personal assistant, and he would have set up the recorder. Uh, to so, listen to that specific well, tape? Well, uh, listen to tapes. To listen because to the tapes. implication in the audience and in the public mind is that Nixon erased the 18 and a half minutes. I find it highly unlikely. Yeah, I don't think it's ever seriously been alleged that Nixon himself did that erasure. Uh, it, it's been suggested that Rose did it on his behalf. It's been suggested, if, if you really carefully examine the tape, there's a, a nine separate starts and stops where somebody was alleged, allegedly erasing to be sure they got everything. Uh, the the uh, They say there was one guy who alleged that Holloman's notes are are uh, redone, that there was a page missing. Uh, but, you know, when you're in there talking to the president, particularly Bob Haldeman, uh, who's in there all the time, the only thing you're taking notes on is what the president tells you to do, not what you tell the president. I mean, if I'm briefing you, I don't need to note what, I, what I'm saying. So the fact it said Watergate doesn't mean he was telling the president. <laughs> This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again. 
with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. By a vote of 92 yeas to 3 nays on November 27, 1973, having confirmed the nomination of Gerald R. Ford of the state of Michigan to be Vice President of the United States, and the House of Representatives by a vote of 387 yeas to 35 nays, on today having confirmed the nomination of Gerald R. Ford of the state of Michigan to be Vice President of the United States, the proceedings required by Section 2 of the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution have been complied with. The gentleman from Michigan, Mr. Gerald R. Ford, has advised the chair that he has transmitted his letter of resignation as a representative of the 5th District of the State of Michigan to the governor and the secretary of the State of Michigan as required by the law of that state. The chair now requests the Chief Justice of the United States to administer the oath of office to the Vice President. Raise your right hand, Mr. Ford. Place your hand on the Bible. And repeat after me. I, Gerald R. Ford, do solemnly swear. I, Gerald R. Ford, do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office. The duties of the office. On which I am about to enter. of the office on which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Mr. President, members of the Congress, and distinguished guests, 
I have the high personal honor of presenting to you a dear friend and former colleague whom we shall all miss, but whom we all congratulate, the Vice President of the United States. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Chief Justice, Mr. President Pro Tempore, distinguished guests, and friends. Together, we have made history here today. For the first time, we have carried out the commands of the 25th Amendment. In exactly eight weeks, we have demonstrated to the world that our great republic stands solid, stands strong upon the bedrock of the Constitution. I'm a Ford not a Lincoln. <laughs> My addresses will never be as eloquent as Mr. Lincoln's. But I will do my very best to equal his brevity and his plain speaking. I'm deeply grateful to you, Mr. President, for the trust and the confidence your nomination implied. As I have throughout my public service under six administrations, I will try to set a high example of respect for the crushing and lonely burdens which the nation lays upon the President of the United States. Mr. President, you have my support and my loyalty. To the Congress assembled, my former colleagues who have elected me on behalf of our fellow countrymen, I express my heartfelt thanks. As a man of the Congress, let me reaffirm my conviction that the collective wisdom of our two great legislative bodies, while not infallible, will in the end serve the people faithfully and very, very well. I will not forget the people of Michigan who sent me to this chamber or the friends that I have found here. 
Mr. Speaker, I understand that the United States Senate intends in a very few minutes to bind me by its rules. For their presiding officer, this amounts practically to a vow of silence. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, you know how difficult this is going to be for me. Before I go from this house, which has been my home for a quarter century, I must say I am forever in its debt. And particularly, Mr. Speaker, thank you for your friendship, which I certainly am not leaving. To you, Mr. Speaker, and to all of my friends here, however you voted an hour ago, I say a very fond goodbye. May God bless the House of Representatives and guide all of you in the days ahead. Mr. Chief Justice, may I thank you personally for administering the oath and thank each of the honorable justices for honoring me with your attendance. I pledge to you, as I did the day I was first admitted to the bar, my dedication to the rule of law and equal justice for all Americans. For standing by my side, as she always has, there are no words to tell you, my dear wife and mother of our four wonderful children, how much their being here means to me. As I look into the faces that fill this familiar room, and as I imagine those faces in other rooms across the land, I do not see members of the legislative branch, or the executive branch, or the judicial branch, though I am very much aware of the importance of keeping the separate but co-equal branches of our federal government in balance. I do not see senators or representatives, nor do I see Republicans or Democrats, vital as the two-party system is to sustain freedom and responsible government. At this moment of visible and living unity, I see only Americans. I see Americans who love their country. Americans who work and sacrifice for their country and their children. I see Americans who pray without ceasing for peace among all nations and for harmony at home. I see new generations of concerned and courageous Americans, but the same kind of Americans 
the children and grandchildren of those Americans who met the challenge of December 7th just 32 years ago. Mr. Speaker, I like what I see. Mr. Speaker, I am not discouraged. I am indeed humbled to be the 40th Vice President of the United States. But I am proud, very proud, to be one of 200 million Americans. I promise my fellow citizens only this, to uphold the Constitution, to do what is right as God gives me to see the right, and within the limited powers and duties of the Vice Presidency, to do the very best that I can for America. I will do these things with all the strength and good sense that I have and with your help and through your prayers. Thank you. In a year that began so hopefully with peace in Vietnam and peace here at home, it ends with President Richard Nixon, the man who saved our union, who had created that peace under siege here at home. It was Christmas 1973, and there were more storms that laid over the horizon for 1974. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am both privileged and honored to introduce to you the President of the United States, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Mr. Dixon, Mr. Secretary, all of the distinguished guests on the platform, all of the ladies and gentlemen, all of the children here in the audience and our television and radio audience across this land, I think one of the greatest privileges that a President of the United States has is to light the Christmas tree the nation's Christmas tree, be, because it belongs to all the nation here in the nation's capital. This year, as the Secretary has already indicated, the tree is different. This year, Christmas will be different in terms of lights, perhaps all across America. Instead of having many lights on the tree, as you will see over there in a few moments, there will be only one on it, the star at the top. And the other lights you see will simply be the glitter from the ground lights which are around the tree. 
And in a way, I suppose one could say, with only one light on the tree, this will be a very dreary Christmas. But we know that isn't true, because the spirit of Christmas is not measured by the number of lights on a tree. The spirit of Christmas is measured by the love that each of us has in his heart for his family, for his friends, for his fellow Americans, and for people all over the world. And this year, while we have a problem, a problem the Secretary has alluded to, the problems of energy, I think that what we can all be thankful for is that it is a problem of peace and not a problem of war. That is what Americans can be thankful for. This year we will drive a little slower. This year the thermostats will be a little lower. This year every American perhaps will sacrifice a little, but no one will suffer. But we will do it for a great goal. The goal first of seeing to it that in a year when our energy supplies are not as high as we need, we can prepare for the future and also a year in which America will make a great stride forward toward a new great goal. And that is, by the year 1980, this nation, which will celebrate its 200th anniversary of independence in 1976, by 1980 will celebrate Project Independence when we are independent of any other country in the world where our energy supply is concerned. That we can do. As we consider these problems of peace, I think also we must also be thankful, as the Secretary has already indicated, for the fact that this is the first Christmas in 12 years that a President has stood here at a time when America was at peace with every nation in the world. It's the first Christmas in eight years when no American prisoner of war is away from home at Christmas. And to all of these young people, and particularly to our very distinguished young people who participated in this program, it is also a Christmas for the first time in 20 years when no young American is being drafted for the armed services. That's what peace means to America. It would be well, of course, for us to stand simply on that achievement, but we know that there will always be threats to the peace of the world, and that is where we come in and where each America comes in looking to the future. Because as we look at the chances not just of getting peace, which we have now achieved, but of keeping peace which we have not been able to do for a full generation, for a century, then what happens in America will decide it. Whether America has the strength, not just of its arms, but more of its spirit, to provide the leadership that the world needs to keep the trouble spots in the world from blowing up into war and to build that permanent structure of peace that we all want. It is that to which we dedicate ourselves as we light the nation's Christmas tree tonight. Let the year 1974 be one 
in which we make great progress toward the goal of a lasting peace. Peace not only for America, but for all nations. Peace between peoples who have different forms of government, but who nevertheless can be friends. A moment ago, when the flowers were presented to Mrs. Nixon by China, I remembered an occasion in 1959 when a little girl presented flowers to her in the Ural Mountains in Russia. We were driving through the mountains, and a group of, sc of school children stopped the cavalcade for a few moments, and they presented flowers to Mrs. Nixon. And when they did so in this year, 1959, when the Cold War was still going on, they shouted out, friendship, friendship in English. When we got back into the car, our guide, Mr. Zukov, said to me that the first word that a Russian child who learns English and studies English in a Russian school learns is the word friendship. That is the first English word the Russian child learns. Now, I do not mean to suggest by that that because a Russian child is taught when he first studies English the word friendship, that it is inevitable that the Russian people and the American people are not going to have differences as far as their governments are concerned. But I do know this. We have had the great privilege, Mrs. Nixon and I, of traveling to most of the nations of the world, to the nations of Africa, to the nations of Asia, to China, to Russia. And I can tell you that the people of the world want peace. The people of the world want friendship. And every American I know wants his country and his, co his government to take the lead in building a world of peace. And as long... And on, as this Christmas season begins, let us just remember, we do have some problems which we will overcome, but they are the problems of peace. And we also have a great challenge, the challenge of helping to build a structure of peace that all the three billion people in this world can enjoy. What a wonderful achievement that can be. There are times, of course, when we tire of the challenge. There are times when we would not like to accept that position of leadership. But let us remember that unless America, at this time in history, accepts the responsibility to lead for peace, we may not have it in the world. I think we can meet the challenge. I'm sure we will. And on this particular day, in this year, 1973, as we look at the beginning of the year 1974, let us so conduct ourselves as a people, let us so conduct ourselves as a nation in our leadership toward peace, that in the years to come, people not only in America but all over the world will look back at what we have done, will look back and say, God bless America.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.